busy, as you know, with the book of Corinthians. We have been in this book now for a couple of weeks, um, and it has taken us places and taken us on different topics. Um, so we looked a little bit about uh, to um, divisions and factions and groups that this church divided themselves in. Um, and their preferences, their preferred apostle, and their preferred teacher, and Paul addressed that issue. Um, Paul said, no, we are one body, we are one temple, one building. Whatever you do to those around you, you also do to yourself. We are one group. Um, then uh, he came a bit to their questions. So there were certain things that reached him um, through reports, and then there were other things that they asked him about um, in, in a letter or maybe multiple letters. And um, one of it was conflict and confrontation and how they should handle that and lawsuits among um, fellow believers. And then there was a big section on uh, relationships and on sexuality and we looked at we almost had this mini series where we looked at everything from um, de deliberate complete sexual licentiousness to being betrothed and married and single and celibate and widowed and divorced and everything in between and um, he seemed to cover you know all of the possibilities there and next up what we're going to look at tonight is the question on food. They ask him a question about food sacrificed to idols and how they should handle this. So please open up your Bible uh, or this evening, I will excuse you if you look on your phone. <laughs> um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll also read a few, chapter, a few verses in chapter 10, but we're going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things, uh, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't they be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? 
So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Let's also read in chapter 10, from verse 23 to, to 33. Verse 23 in chapter 10. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Um, I, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they might be saved. Okay, so what is Paul at here? Are they idols or are they not idols? Should we eat the meat or should we not eat the meat? Are the idols completely empty or are they demonic? Do they have power or don't they have power? The answer is yes. Yes, Paul opens up by this question that they asked. He opens his answer by opposing knowledge to love. He says knowledge, on the one hand, puffs up. It makes you proud. I have this insight in this matter. I have this knowledge that I possess. Love, on the other hand, builds up. It's constructive. In this question of eating food offered to idols, he says that it's not about who is right and who is wrong. Who has the true knowledge and who doesn't? That's not what it's about. Rather, it's about what love would look like in this situation. Then he lays out the situation. He says, in this city, in Corinth, there were some believers who did not yet understand deep down that false gods are not actual deities. Now, for them to see these other stronger believers taking part in the meals at celebrations or, or weddings or whatever celebrations were happening in the temples of their friends, maybe still pagan friends, they saw these stronger believers taking part in this in this eating of the meat or even buying the meat at the market. The meat would come from the temple and be sold 
um, in the markets if it wasn't used, um, everything wasn't used in the temple. Now, these weaker believers see this, and they believe that the stronger believers are actually taking part in this sacrificial uh, offering to the pagans, I mean to the pagan gods. And their consciences, the weaker conscience, is being violated. And this causes them to fall back into idolatry. They stumble in this area where they were still on shaky ground. They've heard the good news. They're starting to walk the journey. But they still have these things that they are not, that's not completely settled in their minds yet. Now Paul's conclusion to the situation in verse 12 is, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to, to fall. Why does Paul say you sin against Christ when you eat this meat that someone else thinks is not right to do? Because you are violating the command of love, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Some rabbis even taught that it's worse to make someone stumble than to kill them. When you killed them, if they were a believer, you just brought them closer to or quicker to heaven. If you make them stumble, you take away or you make it more difficult for them to have eternal life. So it's worse to make someone stumble than to kill them. And that's exactly what Paul says two chapters later. In chapter 10, verse 24, he says, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. What Paul is busy teaching the Corinthians here is not a black and white line. It is wisdom. It's a wisdom teaching. It's something that's in the gray area of the Christian life. It's not always the same in every situation. It depends. That's what makes wisdom so difficult to obtain and to practice. It's not having the knowledge, but applying the knowledge in a loving way. But there is a universal principle that he gives, and that is what we read in, in chapter 10, verse 31 to 33. This universal principle is, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Please everyone in every way, that doesn't sound, we're not people pleasers, are we? No, he says, for I'm not seeking my own good. I'm not a people pleaser so that people like me. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. I'm becoming everything for everyone so that they might not stumble, but that they might be saved. Now, this whole situation is a little bit ironic um, because, in a sense, we are used to fundamentalists being the one, ones who cancel those with freer lines, the more liberal Christians. And yet Paul is saying 
that those with the freer lines, those who have seen the freedom that they now have in Christ, shouldn't cancel the fundamentalists, but should rather follow those same fundamental rules, those things that they believe they have been freed from, they should follow it for the sake of love, for the sake of loving those who are still bound by those chains. Do you see how radical this is? Do you see that Paul is saying that through faith, you have obtained freedom. You are not bound by slavery anymore. But instead of waving your freedom flag, you immediately look around you to see how your freedom is maybe making someone else a slave of their conscience making someone else a slave of a certain aspect where they have not yet been liberated in. And then you willingly lay down this freedom that you have and you come under the yoke of slavery again. The same yoke that you have been freed from. But you come as this, in the status of a freed person. You willingly step under these um, narrower margins for the sake of love. But we might say, but I've been freed and I don't need to do this. And what will God think? I mean, I've been freed from these things. Why am I still doing it? Paul says in verse 3, whoever loves God, then he doesn't say knows God. We think that's what he's going to say. He says whoever loves God is known by God. God knows your heart. God knows your motives. God knows that you've been set free. God knows that you are not a slave of, of these chains, but that you are doing it willingly for the sake of love. Okay, so there's this one word that Paul uses eight times in this passage, and it's not the word the or is. It is... The word conscience. Eight times he uses this word. He talks about having a weak and a strong conscience, about wounding someone's conscience, about doing something for the sake of conscience, about something that's against one person's conscience but not against another per person's conscience. Now let's look at this, this thing called conscience, and I will attempt to answer three questions here. The first is, what is the conscience? The second is, is the conscience a foolproof compass? Is it a foolproof guide for us? And the third one is, am I my brother's keeper or the keeper of my brother's conscience? So the first question, what is the conscience? Now, who of you have watched the movie Pinocchio? <laughs> no one has an excuse. It came out in 1940, so we've all had a lifetime of opportunity to watch Pinocchio. I watched it yesterday in, uh, um, in research for this <laughs> sermon. Um, so Pinocchio is a wooden boy or a wooden doll um, puppet turned into an almost real boy, but he lacks one important thing that will make him human, and that is a conscience, the ability to discern right from wrong. He doesn't have that. The blue fairy uh, says that he needs a conscience, and he asks, what is a conscience? And that's where Jiminy Cricket enters the scene. 
And he says, a conscience is that still small voice that people won't listen to. That's what's wrong with the world today. And Pinocchio asks him, are you my conscience? And he says, who, me? And the blue fairy says, would you like to be his conscience? And he blushes and he says, okay, you know, I can, I'll do that. And she takes her little wand and she says, I dub you Pinocchio's conscience, Lord High Keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, counselor in moments of temptation, and guide along the straight and narrow path. And she turns to Pinocchio. Now remember, Pinocchio, be a good boy and always let your conscience be your guide. Now Thomas Aquinas might have agreed with Jiminy Cricket. He said the conscience is the God-given inner voice that either accuses someone or excuses someone in terms of what we do. We can also think of the conscience as a sense. You know, the same uh, sense as we, we see, we smell, we hear, we touch, we, uh, we taste. This is our sense of discernment. Some people can see very well. Other people need glasses. Some can smell immediately, identify what something is. Others need some time and some memories and so on to, to, to think what it is that they are smelling. The conscience is where the sense of discernment lies. John Calvin spoke of the divine sense that God puts in everyone, the sense that can sense God, the divine sense. That is our conscience. And he said this because, the, um, because God reveals his law in the mind of every human being by planting a conscience within each of us. We all, we're all born with this idea of right and wrong. Our conscience induces in us mental anguish and feelings of guilt when we violate it. And it induces in us feelings of pleasure and of well-being when we act according to our value system, according to what is right, um, according to our conscience. Now the question is, is Jiminy Cricket then right? Or is the Blue Fairy right when she says that we can always follow our conscience to be in line with God's moral law? Is the, the conscience a foolproof compass? The answer is no, because the conscience is fluid. It's not fixed. It can be distorted. It can be misguided. It can be desensitized by repeated sin. Have you ever noticed how kids' consciences seem to be so strong? You know, they have a very strong idea of what is right and wrong, and they go and tell someone immediately if some, someone did something wrong and crossed this line that they have drawn in their minds that they believe is right and wrong. As they grow older, though, they learn, they see that there's not always such strict consequences if you do something against your conscience, and that it's sometimes thrilling to do something that you actually know is wrong. We do the same as adults. We find new ways to view sinful behavior as acceptable. We learn how to turn down the volume of our conscience, and we make the necessary adjustments 
so that our ethics align with how we want to live, not how God wants us to live. We do this as individuals, but we also do this as a culture. We look at what the culture around us is doing, and we make that our guide of what is right. A few decades ago, it was completely um, uh, unacceptable to abort a baby. Now it's, it's part of the moral, the, the cultural conscience of what is acceptable in, in many people's minds. We can also fall off on the other side of the wagon. That's what happened to these people in Corinth that we read about. In the situation that Paul is addressing, uh, we see that those with the weaker conscience became too legalistic. Their margins of what is right and wrong were drawn too narrow. Their straight and narrow path were really very straight and narrow. They see things that were not sinful as sinful. It's like a pendulum that swings. They were completely on the one side when they were worshipping the, the pagan gods and sacrificing these idols. And then they came to faith and they swung completely to the other side where they say we cannot eat any meat that was ever in a temple, ever sacrificed in a temple. And now they need to find this middle ground of freedom, the truth of the freedom that is in Christ. Okay, so what we see here is that the, the, the conscience is like an organ, something that grows or withers, something that can be strong or weak. By repeatedly choosing to act against our conscience, we are desensitizing it. We are not giving it water. It's withering. It's diminishing um, in its power to guide us. But by acting in accordance with our conscience, it becomes stronger. We can also feed our conscience. The question is whether we are feeding it with God's moral law or feeding it with whatever our day and age says is, uh, is acceptable. We have to let God inform our conscience. He does this through his spirit, through his word, through the wise in our community, the elders, the people who have walked the journey of faith for a long time and have experienced many things and seen different sides of God and become in tune with the truth. So what does this look like for us? What does this look like practically for us to inform, to let God inform our conscience? Well, I think it looks like fellowship. Looks like Bible study, looks like prayer, like conversations, like wrestling together with our convictions and with the texts and saying, how is my morality not in line with God's morality? When we do this, then scripture becomes our reference point, not culture and not our own ideas. When we do this together, even with people that have more fundamentalist ideas or with people that have more liberal or freer ideas, we come to Scripture as allies, not as enemies. We are together there as disciples seeking truth, seeking God's moral law. And we both stand open to correction. 
We invite the Spirit to speak to us, to illuminate through the Word where our conscience is not in line. Now this is how we inform our conscience and how we build this framework of what is truly right and wrong. Okay, so we know now that our conscience is fluid, that it, that it can and should be transformed by God's revelation. But there's still a problem, and that is that we are all on different places in this journey. Some of us have walked the journey for a long time. We've seen many things, and we've stood through many trials and temptations and fall in, uh, fell in others. And some of us are just starting out on this journey. The implication is that the level to which our conscience has been informed by God differs. Now, how should we handle this? This is the question that the Corinthians asked Paul. How should we handle this? Should we laugh at those whose conscience is weaker than ours? Should we bash them with a Bible over the head and wave the insights that we've gained in front of their eyes? Should we just go on as we used to and wash our hands in innocence? Should we cancel them as fundamentalists and pray that God will show them the way? Or as heretics? Paul's answer is, we must stoop low. We must swallow whatever pride we have because of the knowledge that we think we have. And we must make the road level for each other. We must not be a stumbling block, a stone lying in the road. We must rake the road clean, sweep the road clean, put up signposts to help each other on this road. And this, Paul says, is how we love each other. So that brings us to the third question. Am I then the keeper of my brother's conscience? Am I responsible for him not acting against his conscience? Well, in a sense, yes. Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Jesus paid an expensive price for each of our brothers and sisters. And this price that Jesus paid, this knowledge of what Jesus did should generate in us a love that looks out for the best interests, just as Christ looked out for our best interests when he died for us. So there are a few examples that uh, I've heard about, and the one is um, that Daniel actually told about his dad, who um, was a minister in Botswana, and uh, alcohol was a really big problem in that community, and um, the abuse of alcohol. And while well, his dad enjoyed his glass of wine or his, um, you know, whiskey in the evening or whatever, but he saw that this is a big problem for those that he's trying to reach, those that he, you know, he's here for their best will, he's here to minister to them. And so he left uh, his, you know, glass of wine. He stopped taking it. He got rid of the alcohol in his house. And for many years, he didn't use alcohol for their sake. Because he realized if, if they come into his house and they see, oh, the minister is using alcohol, it's fine. We can use it. They might just stumble again. 
and fall into the, uh, the temptation to abuse alcohol. I've also heard about the, the example the other way around almost, where uh, um, it was a congregation in Johannesburg um, and there came someone from another country and in his home church alcohol was also completely taboo and because of the abuse that there was in the community. And, um, but then he came to this church in Johannesburg and he saw people are using alcohol, you know, they drink their glass of wine and whatever, and he thought, oh, okay, it's fine, I can use it. And he fell into the pit of um, abusing alcohol. And they had to, as a congregation or as, you know, as his um, group of, of friends there, had to guide him, had to disciple him in how to use alcohol. The other example is um, a girl that, that I met, and she came out of a, a church where um, women were not allowed to wear makeup and none were allowed to have piercings and women only wore um, long dresses and long skirts and so on. And her mum is still in that, um, in that church. And she doesn't know what to do now uh, because she got convinced otherwise. She got convinced that she has freedom to wear makeup and to have piercings and to... Um, to look after herself in that sense. But her mother is still very much convinced that it's not the right thing to do. So what's interesting about um, this example that Paul gives in this letter to the Corinthians is that he's talking about something that is actually acceptable. And he's telling them now, abstain from that thing that is not sinful, that is acceptable. Abstain from that for the sake of the other person. He's not talking about continuing to do something that's actually unacceptable for the sake of not condemning the other person. So an example might be swearing. You know how uh, contagious, in a sense, swearing is. If you're in a group of people where swear words are dropped everywhere, it, you know, it's two seconds and some words cross your mouth that you don't use <laughs> in other circles or um, in, in your normal life. He's not saying it's okay, you know, um, you don't want them to feel condemned, so it's okay to do that in certain senses. No, he's saying... he's. Is but especially talking about circles where things that are actually okay to do that you are convinced you have been freed from, no, put on that yoke again for the sake of others. Paul is saying that spiritual maturity, and I conclude with this, he's saying that spiritual maturity is making room for people who draw their lines at different places than you do. It's about obeying the law of love, not the law of knowledge. This is a call for us to be just a little bit more sensitive to the spiritual welfare of other people. We have to ask ourselves, where are they? Where are this brother or sister of mine in terms of their conviction and in terms of their maturity? Do they have the knowledge that I have? 
And if not, how can I love them best in this situation? Is what I'm doing building them up or is it a stumbling block to them? And let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is not an easy subject. It's, it seems fuzzy. It seems difficult to know exactly how to apply this to our lives. It's not a, a clear instruction. It is a, a case of having wisdom to know, to know how our brother or sister needs to be built up instead of tempted to stumble. Lord, please enlighten this truth in us. Please show us how to apply it. Please show us what this means for us today, in this week, tomorrow, at work, uh, in our homes, with our families, with our spouses, with our kids, with strangers, with other people in dialogue, with our cell group, with our friends. Show us where we are not yet loving other people, but rather where we are puffed up by our knowledge. Help us to mature in our love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.